What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, I'm Farah Jassat and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to this week's episode. With Inception, we wanted to present the surreal world of the dreamscape, but present it with the absolute clarity and conviction of photorealism, because that's very important to the story that you don't know when you're in reality and when you're in the dream. The Harry Potter franchise has been an extraordinary thing for the British film industry because it gave us 10 years of consistent work at the highest possible level of quality across all areas of filmmaking. And we actually had Arup, uh, the engineers, as consultants on the project, and we were showing them how we wanted to destroy it, and they, I think they said something like, that is not a valid failure mode of the structure. <laughs> And, and we said, ah, yes, but did you ever account for aerial attack by dark wizards? Exactly. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success, from school and home life to the world of Batman comics to playing with the first generation of home computers such as the ZX81 or stumbling across an intriguing programme on the radio that transported you to the end of the universe. You can comment on social media with the hashtag IQ2. 
My guest today has, I think we could say, changed the way we imagine. You may not know his name, but you'll definitely know his work. Paul J. Franklin is an Oscar and BAFTA-winning visual effects director and designer. His two Oscars came for the films Interstellar and Inception. But he has another 15 major awards, going back to his work on the Christopher Nolan film Batman Begins. They've made three Batman films with The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. Paul also designed the visual effects on two of the darkest and best Harry Potter films, Order of the Phoenix and The Half-Blood Prince. Other recent films include Captain America Civil War, Blade Runner 2049, First Man about the first moon landing and Venom. But his first film credit was on the now cult movie Hackers. We should be talking about all these things. Paul, I've been fascinated by your Hollywood career as a man who kind of designs our dreams with the science of new technology because you're an artist but an artist who grew up the child of two research scientists at ICI in Cheshire. Mm-hmm. What sort of upbringing did you have? I, you know, I had a very uh, creative upbringing because uh, my parents uh, both come from scientific backgrounds. My father's a biochemist and my mother was originally a chemist. But they were both very interested in the arts. My father very interested in music, particularly jazz. And uh, my mother was very much steeped in American pop culture because my mother's actually from Puerto Rico in the Caribbean. And so she grew up reading comic books and watching Saturday morning cinema and all that sort of stuff and was still very enthusiastic about it uh, when I came along uh, years later. And I gather Batman comics were a feature from quite early on. Yeah, I think my my mum was reading the old uh, Batman comics in the in the forties and uh, I guess the early fifties. Would have been detective comics. Yeah, then, it would have been detective comics, and uh, you know, with Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman was also a particular favourite uh, for Excellent. for obvious reasons because she's a very independent woman, and which I definitely say my mother is. And my mother was also just you know very interested in the future and always has been and so she also was reading quite a bit of science fiction and so I found her you know collection of science fiction novels and short stories and I would uh, I started reading that when I was quite young. Any particular stories that had an impact on you? Well the the writer who really had an impact me on me was a, a guy called Robert Sheckley who was an American writer who was very prolific in the 50s and 60s. A couple of years ago I actually took my favourite Robert Sheckley story and adapted it into a short film. So it's uh, you could say it's a l- very long-term influence on me. Which was that one? It's, a f- it's originally... The story's originally called The Store of the Worlds, and the um, the film I made from it is called The Escape, which if you search for my name and The Escape online, you'll come across it on Vimeo. Excellent. Your mother got you drawing as well, mm. didn't she, early on? Yeah. I think drawing really uh, was something that transported me. I can clearly remember drawing fantasy worlds when I was in my young childhood, like six, seven years old and things. So this is the early 70s, which is a great age of kind of dystopian science fiction, isn't it? It is, but also, perhaps more importantly, it's the age of the moon landings. And I was obsessed with that, uh, and still am, uh, again, which is why I ended up probably working on, on First Man as the visual effects consultant. It seemed to me as a five, six year old that Every few months, somebody would land on the moon and you'd watch it on the TV and there'd be these extraordinary things, this amazing hardware. And it was the science fiction that was on television coming to literally to life in front of your eyes. And the things that had been fantasy were now a reality. People could fly to the moon. And it just seemed like it would never end. <laughs> well, there's a particular TV show, which you and I mm-hmm. both loved, called Space 1999, mm-hmm. which was set on a lunar base. Yes. Even the title suggests it was deliberately set not too far in the future. Yes. And I know it was a big influence on you, as it was on a lot of people mm. who work in, in film and science. Tell me why. 
Well, I think that I first saw Space 1999 actually featured on a Horizon, BBC Horizon documentary. Science documentary. Yeah, about sci- a science documentary in which they were talking, I think, about special effects and filmmaking, and they showed the work in progress on Space 1999, which uh, was still a year away from being transmitted. And we should say this is the Jerry Sylvia Anderson yes. live-action drama, yes. The People Who Made Thunderbirds. Yes, exactly. So Jerry Anderson had uh, become famous for making puppet shows like Thunderbirds and Stingray and Captain Scarlet in the 1960s. But then he moved into live action, first of the show called uh, UFO in 1970, and then Space 1999, which is essentially the sequel to UFO. And, you know, they put real proper money behind this thing. It's uh, one of the most expensive British TV shows ever made. I think in modern terms, it would be several million dollars an episode. You know, the production value is incredible. They got the great actor Martin Landau yeah. as, uh, as the Commander lead, Koenig. As Commander Koenig and his then-wife, Barbara Bain, and they'd both been co-stars in Mission Impossible before that, so they were big TV stars at the time. And each week they would have a, a different guest star, and they were drawn from the, you know, the greats of uh, British uh, cinema and television, people like Peter Cushing yes. and Christopher Lee would show up and... Uh, uh, there is an episode with Bernard Cribbins. I was just well, going to say that. Which is, he's rather good. He plays a sort of rather Brian mysterious Brain. individual. Yes, that's We could a... have a whole separate podcast mm. about Space 1999. But, but the key is, I think, the, the special effects on that, the, yes. the models which Brian Johnson made, who mm. went on to work on Empire Strikes Back, and the depiction of space, Yes, was that what really grabbed yeah, you? Yeah, the, the, the way that the world was built, as we would say in filmmaking, the way that they constructed the moon base, they designed it, it was all very consistent, and then the depiction of space, and particularly the spacecraft and the Eagle spacecraft, which was designed by Brian, is one of the classic science fiction spaceships, and it still looks as good today as it did 40-odd years ago when it first came out. And the whole show... Its general look very much owed a lot to 2001. You know, they were, and there's famously this letter in the Kubrick archive in which Kubrick is talking with his business partners and saying, I think we should sue these guys because they're ripping us off. <laughs> and, uh, and then also, uh, Space 1999 had a, a direct influence on Star Wars because the Millennium Falcon. It was originally going to be that spacecraft that first appears at the very beginning of the film, the Rebel Blockade Runner. But when George Lucas saw the Eagle transporter, he thought, well, this looks too much like the Eagle, so we have to change it. So that's when they came up with the big sort of pie dish with the prongs on the front of it, which is the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> Excellent. Well, these are visual influences, but I know the BBC radio mm. series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adam, was also a big influence on you. It's yes. still hailed as a landmark in science fiction. First broadcast in 1978, you stumbled across it as a child. Yeah, I think I came across the second repeat, or the first repeat, when they, originally it was in the graveyard slot, and it became very popular, and they repeated it on Radio 4 in the evenings, and I picked up on the last episode of the first series. And initially, I listened to it because I thought it was the work of the science fiction author author I mentioned, Robert Sheckley, because it was satirical, funny, humorous science fiction. And I didn't know who Douglas Adams was. I mean, I later found I'd been watching his work on television because he was the script editor for Doctor Who around the same time. I just was drawn immediately to the humour. But again, the way that the world was created through these wonderful sound effects they used in it. Douglas Adams stated that he wanted it to sound like a, you know, like a Pink Floyd album, like a prog rock album, in this incredible immersive soundscape. And it would just transport you. And it was very, very exciting to uh, listen. I remember this, when the second series was broadcast, I was just in a, a very heightened, agitated state all day. Because, of course, you, know, you couldn't... There was no iPlayer. And uh, recording off air was pretty rudimentary in those days. Uh, we had a radio cassette recorder, I think. And I remember um, 
waiting up until I think it went out like 9.30 at night and waiting up because I was only 11 or 12 or something to, to listen to it. And, yeah, that had a big effect on me because I, I, I spent a lot of time drawing my own imaginings of what the world of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy looked like. And then a few years later when the TV show came out, you would compare it to what they actually did on on screen and try and figure out whether you'd actually guessed it right or not. Was listening to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy the moment where you thought, I want to work in this world of making these things come alive, these imagined worlds? I would say I definitely felt that I wanted to be making worlds or immerse myself in that world. I don't think I was thinking of it coherently as, yeah, I can get a career doing this and uh, go and do all these things. Because even something like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy still seemed quite remote and distant. You know, I was growing up in rural Cheshire in the late 1970s. I didn't know anybody that was involved in this sort of thing. My family didn't know anybody who was involved in these sorts of things. So it seemed quite distant. And I think, actually, the thing which was more influential in terms of getting me drawn directly into actually making stuff were comic books, because that felt more accessible. That felt like something that you could grab hold of and do it yourself, you know, sort of punk DIY aesthetic just pick up a pen and start drawing because that's straightforward. And you did have a lot of drawings on your bedroom wall, mm. didn't you? What sort of stuff were you doing? Well, I again, another thing that was a big influence on me it came out around about the same time is the British science fiction comic 2000 AD, which was first published when I was 10 years old in 1977. I was uh, transported by you know, these frankly quite violent dystopian stories that are in there, but it has a lot of humour and that uh, that is the saving grace. And it has this particularly sort of cynical, ironic British humour that runs through it, even though a lot of the characters are Americans and stuff. It's sort of you're looking into that world and uh, parodying it. And it's the same kind of humour which years later shows up in a movie like Robocop, which for me is clearly just taken directly out of the Judge Dredd comics from 2000 AD. And again, this, this idea that it, you could see this page in front of you and it was black and white artwork on fairly cheap paper, that felt like something you could do yourself. And so I taught myself the basics of what I would describe as science fiction comic illustration by copying drawings directly out of 2000 AD, copying the work of artists like uh, Massimo Ballardinelli and Jesus Redondo and uh, Carlos Esquerra. And you'll notice that they're all European names. They're all Spanish and Italians. There were some British artists. So it's very much in a sort of European tradition of, uh, of comics. You know, it comes from the sort of bande dessinée, you know, French comics, Metal Erland, that sort of world, mm -hmm. but with this very distinct British twist to it. Although you were doing this in your non-school hours, you had planned to be a scientist, hadn't you? How did you come to study art? Well, I think, you know, growing up in a, a scientific family, uh, and my father came from a, a working-class background. Uh, he was the first member of his family to go to university, and he'd become a, a very successful research scientist working in uh, the British pharmaceutical industry, working for ICI. Everybody we knew who was successful were basically scientists or technical in some way. So it seemed like the logical path. And art, as, as exciting and as involving as I found it, I thought, well, that's just what I do in my spare time. You know, that's my thing. You know, some people like listening to music and watching films or whatever, and I like making drawings, but science was going to be the thing. I applied to universities for, to do a degree in uh, biochemistry or, or biotechnology. I was very interested in the emerging world of uh, genetic engineering. But I then spent a couple of summers working in my father's lab it was an extraordinary experience because I could see just how dedicated people were and and how hard work it actually is, you know, that, uh, and I could see that it was a, a long-term process. To get results, 
you have to stick at it for a very, very, very long time. Uh, an example, a, a rather exalted example, was my friend Kip Thorne, who I worked with on Interstellar. And he came up with some scientific ideas in the 1960s, which he eventually got his Nobel Prize for in 2017. So he was a young man when he came up with it. And he's in his, years later. Yeah, exactly. So it, okay. it takes a long while to see the fruition of your work. And, you know, frankly, I don't think I had uh, the rigour or the backbone to do something like that. And so you, you did sort of went to art college before mm-hmm. you went to Oxford University to do fine yeah, art. Yeah, I did. I, I felt I needed a bit of time to figure out what it was I wanted to do in art, you know, find my voice, I guess. So I went back and I did uh, another set of A-levels in art, art history and English at a local college of further education in Crewe. That introduced me to a whole range of people who were interested in all sorts of different things. You know, I got, I started playing in bands. There were friends, we started making little short videos, what we called scratch videos, where you would, you'd take your dad's video recorder around to your friend's house and hook it up to his dad's video recorder or his parents' video recorder. And then you would edit back and forth little clips of television commercials and TV shows. And we had a, a, a video camera we borrowed from the college and we shot ourselves doing various pretentious things in dark glasses and stuff and put these things together. So that's my first proper experience of filmmaking. And that was quite fun. And you had to be quick because the video recorder would only stay in pause for five minutes while you're trying <laughs> to figure out which bit you wanted to edit next. And then I went on to do a thing called a foundation course in art and design at the Cheshire School of Art and Design in Northwich in Cheshire. And that introduced me to painting, printmaking, sculpture, uh, photography. Uh, so like a one-year intensive sort of primer in being an artist. And I think that then set me up with uh, to have enough confidence to go on to uh, art school proper. And I went to the Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine Art, which is the rather elaborately named art department of Oxford University. And you also got into theatre design in a big yes. way. One of the great things at university was uh, meeting a wide range of people who were interested in doing all sorts of different things and really getting on with it, and they didn't recognise any limits. I think that was one of the things I felt had been the case prior to that, is that everybody's ambition was fairly constrained, I think, just by the horizons of the world that they're in, you know, in, up in rural Cheshire. Getting to Oxford, you've met people who basically wanted to rule the world, and you know, quite a few of them, unfortunately, ended up doing that, and that might account for some of the problems we were having at the moment. But... Um, we were very lucky. The college had a very well-heeled uh, theatre group called St John's Mummers, and they backed the plays that we were making. And I got into designing the posters and sets. You know, I had to go at everything. I wanted to try everything. There's a formative friendship moment, isn't mm-hmm. there, when you were at Oxford? Um, going to see Last Summer in Marienbad, the Alan Redknow film, yes. um, at the local student picture house, the Penelope yes. Picture Palace. Who did you meet and how has it changed your well, career? What it was is actually I was working on a play with a friend. Another student at the college had approached me. He'd seen a poster I'd done and he asked me to do the poster for his play. And I ended up doing all the set design for it as well. And I announced to my friend uh, I was going to be late for rehearsal because I was going to the the cinema to watch Last Year in Marion Bad. And he said, oh, I didn't know you were interested in films. And I said, oh, yeah, no, it's I love filmmaking and films. And, uh, and we got talking and we suddenly realised that everybody in the room wanted to make films and we all started making short films. Uh, again, uh, extracting money out of the College Drama Society to back this. And so we made a series of little short films, first on videotape and then eventually 8mm and 16mm films, so they became more and more ambitious. And that's my friend Ben Hopkins, who is a, uh, a British film director who lives in Berlin these days. But, uh, but you you know, all... I learnt a lot about film from him. And you all kind of go mm. back to this moment together. Yes. 
I'm interested as well in the impact of early computers mm-hmm. on you and the way you thought. Because yeah. anyone who remembers the early 80s remembers growing up with all these new British computer brands like mm. the Spectrum, the ZX, uh, Sinclair brand, that um, yeah. Clive Sinclair designed, Acorns. What was the potential you saw and how far did you see a connection to the films that were out in the cinema, like Disney's Tron? Growing up in the 70s as a child, you didn't get access to computers. They just weren't around. We didn't even have uh, cash tills on the high street, so which I thought was science fiction when they first turned up. So computers existed really in the, in the fantasy world, in science fiction films and things, you know, uh, in HAL in 2001 or, you know, K-9 in Doctor Who. It's... Uh, <laughs> They were kind of fantasy things, but I was fascinated by the idea of them and the potential for them. A family friend had a a dumb terminal connected to a mainframe computer at ICL, which is a big computer company, which was many miles away. Uh, Can you just remind us what a dumb terminal is? Dumb terminal basically is... Well, actually, we're kind of getting back to this these days, which is that in the old days, uh, computers were huge room-sized machines or house-sized machines, and you couldn't take them around with you. So if you wanted to work with them, You'd have a workstation terminal which would be connected by data lines to this thing. So, And the terminal didn't do anything. It was just a display, a TV screen with a keyboard, and you'd be able to operate the thing. And, you know, I, interestingly now, when you do things with your, your mobile phone, your smartphone, quite often the computation is happening somewhere else. It's not happening inside the phone. So we're getting back to that these days. And I was fascinated by this thing, just the mere thing of pressing a button and a character would appear on the screen. You just didn't hadn't seen that before because... Word processors didn't exist. You had typewriters, you know, you drew on things, you sent stuff off to be printed. It would come back. You had no idea how it had actually been turned into print. Later on, when the first affordable home computers appeared, I became very excited about this, and I got hold of a Sinclair ZX81 in 1981, which was a, you know, we describe it as a computer, but it looked like a sort of large calculator, yes, a little black thing. I bought it from W. H. Smith in Macclesfield for seventy pounds. And what did you code on it? I taught myself the rudimentary basic programming. There's a computer language called BASIC that ran on the computer, and I uh, wrote a very simple drawing package which allowed me to place pixels on the screen and build up a sort of mosaic picture. Can I say, Paul, I feel that there's another world in which I might have mm. become you. The only thing I ever <laughs> learned to do, I had a ZX Spectrum, my parents yes. um, splashed out. I designed, I wrote my own programme to design planets so it looked like the monitors in Space 1999. Oh, that's pretty cool. And I had yeah, a display of yeah, that's more, space. That's a bit more special. I'm afraid that's as far as I got. After you graduated, mm. I know finding a job in the screen industry wasn't easy. Mm. Tell me about the first job you took in Liverpool, because it connects to your fascination with computers, but it also then takes you into the world of, of sort of screen imagery, doesn't it? Yeah, so in, in 1992, I'd been out of uh, university for a few years by this point, and I'd been m- making a living freelancing little bits of graphics. I'd worked as a videotape editor for a small corporate video company doing really seriously low-end promotional films. But I taught myself uh, how to use a computer called a Commodore Amiga, which was a sort of next-level home computer that had pretty sophisticated graphics for the time. About this time, I saw a job ad in The Guardian for a British games company called Cygnosis. They uh, were looking for computer artists. I knew the game, the company because I played their games and I had always admired their graphics because they used real science fiction artists, genre artists, people like Roger Dean and Chris Foss. Chris Foss had been one of the designers on Alien. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll 
well, I need a job and this looks good. And it's also quite relatively near to where I lived in Cheshire. So you moved back to Cheshire? Yeah, but, I was still in Cheshire. But what point. computers did they have? Because that's what clinched it. Well, when I got there, uh, expecting just to see the Commodore Amigas, which were the backbone of games graphics at the time, I uh, saw that they'd bought uh, the first generation of sort of Hollywood standard uh, graphics workstations, things called Silicon Graphics Computers, or SGIs as we called them. And these machines back then were, they were seriously expensive. A single workstation fully loaded with software could set you back anything up to £100,000 in the money of the day. So considerably more expensive than the house I was living in at the time. It was like three or four times the cost of the house. So you wanted to be able to work on those machines? Yeah, Terminator 2 had come out recently and uh, Jurassic Park was, uh, was coming into sight. And I knew that the animations in those films had been created with these computers. And with that software, and I thought, well, I absolutely have to get this job. I'll, I'll do this job no matter what they offer me. If I have to pay them, I will do the job because I can learn how to use these machines. So what did you learn and then how did you make the leap into your first feature film? Well, it was interesting. It was quite a competitive environment. They'd bought six of these machines and five of them were assigned to artists already. So there was a spare machine sitting around. And I was a junior artist doing what are called 8-bit graphics for uh, floppy disk-based games. And I knew that there was this vacant slot for this one SGI machine. So unlike some of my colleagues who were, <laughs> frankly, more interested in going to the pub at the end of the day, I stayed behind every night uh, with the manual, teaching myself how to use a piece of software called Soft Image, which had been used to animate the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. And this was a golden opportunity because I couldn't possibly afford to buy this software. As I say, it was, cost like £25,000 for a single licence in the day. So then when we were all given a tryout on it, I was well ahead of everybody else. And I remember one of the guys was quite annoyed. He says, oh, it's unfair. He's, uh, he's been using the computer in the evening. And, <laughs> and the boss just looked at him and said, well, why didn't you? And, uh, and that's one thing I think I've always learned is that you, you can sit around and wait for somebody to show you how to use something, but you do really have to invest some of your own time and effort in these things to get on if you want to... Uh, get ahead of it. And also, I, I just loved it. There was nothing that made me happier than sitting there figuring out how to build these things and then create these images, which looked like they could fit into a film. So suddenly I thought, wow, I can do this. So how did you get into feature films then? I continued working at Cygnosis for a couple of years, working on uh, games which eventually ended up on the very first generation PlayStation, as a, a, first as a, an animator, and then eventually I art directed one of the games. In my spare time, I was using the computers to continue making short films with my friend Ben. Ben, by this point, was he had graduated uh, from Oxford and he was making short films and I was using the computers to make animations for the short films, so basically uh, visual effects. And they were quite ambitious. We made two films, one called Nine Circles, about a man who wins uh, the ultimate prize on a, a quiz show, a bit like Going for Gold. Mm -hmm. He actually used the Going for Gold set in Manchester at the BBC to shoot the quiz show scenes. And his prize is that he wins a trip to hell, to Dante's Inferno. <laughs> and so I had to visualise Dante's Inferno in the computer. We built a rudimentary blue screen stage in uh, Ben's flat in Archway, which I travelled down on the train from, from Cheshire and... Uh, We'd shoot this on the weekends. And, uh, and then uh, I did the animations back in Liverpool. And, but the key thing was that I had no idea how to get the graphics from the computer onto film because our movie was being made on 16mm film. And so I ended up calling round all the visual effects companies, the post-production houses here in London. And everybody I spoke to kept saying to me, you need to talk to this guy uh, called Matthew Holborn who works at 
the printed picture company, which is a subsidiary of the moving picture company, which is a very big visual effects company these days. And, um, and Matt was looking after a process that would allow you to transfer uh, uh, video and computer graphics directly onto film. And they were making a lot of money out of it, converting commercials that they had made at, the, at MPC for the cinema. So when you used to watch the cinema, the commercials come up and they'd actually be on a film reel, they'd probably gone through the machines at, at right. MPC. And he said, well, we'll do you a deal. We'll, uh, we'll just charge you stock and processing. Ultimately, they charged me nothing for the transfer. I remember, and I remember asking Matt on the phone, so how much will this cost? Would this uh, cost? And he says, if you're asking that question, you can't afford it. And that was entirely right. It was about three pounds a frame to transfer it. But they did it for free for you. They did it for free. And they saw the work and uh, offered me a job. And so I left Cygnosis and went to join Moving Picture Company in 1994. The company was beginning to get into doing digital effects for feature films. And so the first feature I worked on was uh, a movie called Hackers. 1995? Uh, 1995. We were started in 94, yeah. Ian yeah. And Johnny Lee Miller and the then unknown Angelina Jolie. Yeah, Angelina was uh, 19 when she was starting that film. Can we talk about the Batman films? Mm. Uh, Batman Begins is the first time you worked with Christopher Nolan, is yes. that right? Yes. How did it come about? And tell me about that relationship, because clearly there's a thing of Batman comics going back to childhood in you too. I mean, the way I got onto that film was through an earlier film called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, which oh, is based a, on, the, uh, on the Alan, Alan Moore, Moore comics. comics. Yeah, the Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill comics, which I loved because Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill are both 2000 AD alumni. And I was fascinated by those comics. And then when I heard there was a film being made, I was very excited about that and we wanted to try and get on it. But what won us the work there was we had just made a movie, which very few people have ever seen, called Below, which is a submarine film, a ghost story set on a submarine. The submarine work on that won us a slot on... League of Extraordinary Gentlemen doing the submarine for of that Of course, film. the Captain Nemo sequences. And I got, yeah, exactly. And I got to work with a British visual effects supervisor who's by the name of Yannick Sirs. And uh, Yannick, has, despite his unusual name, is from uh, originally from Derby, but lives in Los Angeles these days. We had a, a great laugh working on the film, which was crazy. It was totally out of control, that film. Uh, the director, who's also a friend, uh, Steve Norrington, uh, didn't have a good relationship with the studio and had an even worse relationship with Sean Connery, the uh -huh. star of the film. And famously, Connery never Who made another Qu movie. Quartermain. Yeah, he plays Alan Quartermain. And he, famously, Connery never made another movie after, after League, so <laughs> we did for his career. And we'd been through this, frankly, what turned into, frankly, a hellish experience at the end. It got completely out of control. And the film was... There was huge pressure to finish the film and just get it into the cinemas. But at the end of it, you know, we were, I was still alive and, uh, and I'd got on really well with Yannick. And so he then got the job of VFX supervisor on Batman Begins. And he brought me on board uh, as partly as a thank you for having persevered through the craziness of League. And one of the great things about Yannick was that he is a very collaborative, inclusive visual effects artist, that he wants to work with you as a partner. He doesn't want to just be the boss telling you what to do. And I, I do remember he sent out this letter to everybody who was going to work on the, on the show saying, I'm going to offer you a greater level of creative involvement than you would normally get as a visual effects vendor, a contractor working on the film. With it will come a commensurate level of creative culpability if you get it wrong. <laughs> and I remember that very clearly. But what it meant is that uh, I could... Uh, talk directly to Chris Nolan, and, you know, to sum it up, is that he would put me directly in front of Chris and to explain the work. 
the look of that film changed the way people thought about mm. Batman. It was so different to the yes. um, earlier, I mean, particularly the 60s association people had with the yeah. much-loved comic TV show. Tell me about that vision of darkness, because it yeah. characterises those films with Chris Nolan. Was that mm. something you cooked up together? Well, I think that primarily comes from Chris. You know, it's a, the movie is Chris's vision. Yes. And, uh, you know, famously, Chris does never does a director's cut. You know, the people often release the director's cut of a film. And that's because you've already seen the director's cut. That's the movie that went out in the cinema. And his whole approach to Batman Begins was that he wanted to take this thing as seriously as you could before it would just collapse under its own weight. So how did that mean you were thinking visually then? Put, turn, turn it around and tell me what you're mm. putting into that film and that well, makes what, it... What we, what we did is we approached it from a, a photographic basis. Uh, and by that I mean that rather than go ahead and just build everything in the computer, which uh, the previous Batman film, Batman and Robin, had done a lot of that and it, you know, it had a very stylized look and it was not at all what we wanted for this film you go out and shoot things you put reality in front of the camera and then that informs what you do in the visual effects you, you i've got to say my mm. teenage son still raves about his best visual effects in that film the things like, is there a giant truck that the truck flip is actually yes. in the second film in dark night uh in the dark night that's the but uh, he was talking movie, about yeah. the effects that he loved most the ones mm. that are clearly real that you then yeah play so the with. So that's uh, and that's what Chris Nolan would do. Is that he would say, right, I want to explore exhaustively all the possibilities for doing this for real in camera, as we say, and working with the special effects department. And special effects and visual effects are two different things. Special effects is the physical, practical effects that happens on the set in real time as the cameras are returning. And visual effects is what we do in post-production later on when we're adding to the pictures. So give me examples of ones that you added and that, that you're proud so of a, in any of those uh, films. A, visual, a special effect in The Dark Knight is the truck flipping end over end. Chris Corbold, our you know, amazing special effects supervisor, rigged that truck to flip for real in front of us all on LaSalle Street in downtown Chicago. Uh, it's about two in the morning. <laughs> it happened, and it was as extraordinary to see for real as it appears on the on the screen. A visual effect would be a scene a little bit earlier in the film, which is when Batman ejects the bat pod, the crazy motorcycle made out of the front wheels of the Batmobile, ejects out of the uh, out of the crashed Batmobile. That's entirely created in the computer. That's a hundred percent CGI. And that is uh, made by uh, my visual effects team at double negative, put that together. But the work that we did in that shot is very much informed by the physical, practical work that Chris Corbold had done on the set beforehand. So right. we want to make it feel like it's a seamless part of it. And hopefully people watch the movie and they can't see where we're flipping back and forth between things. Definitely. Can we talk about Inception and Interstellar? It mm. seems difficult to kind of put the two together because they're so different. But part of what's fascinating about those films are, in the case of Inception, you're imagining how people imagine and mm. creating this whole new visual landscape, kind of the city yes. folding and unfolding. And in Interstellar, much was made of trying to use real science. Yes. But in both cases, you were definitely pushing the envelope of what people felt, of what people could see on screen. Mm. Tell yes. me about how you did that. Well, uh, Inception uh, was the first time that I was the sole overall VFX supervisor on one of Chris's films. And I'd been at one of the supervisors on the, uh, the previous two Batman movies. The big difference for me on Inception was that the visual effects needed to be just as photorealistic and convincing as the effects we'd made for the Batman films, but in this case, they were very much at the heart of the storytelling because in the Batman films, the visual effects are important, but they form the background texture of the world. They create the landscape of Gotham City stretching off into the distance or they allow us to achieve a stunt that might not have otherwise been possible in the way that we presented it, but there probably was a way to figure out how to do it practically if you wanted to do it practically. With Inception, 
we wanted to present the surreal world of the dreamscape, but present it with the absolute clarity and conviction of, of photorealism, so that it just looked like you'd gone out and shot the thing. Yes. Because that's very important to the story, that you don't know when you're in reality and when you're in the dream. That pushed you both uh, technically in terms of the standard you had to come up to because you had to make these images sit in with uh, some pretty unforgiving live-action daytime environments. Batman is all at night yes. and it's actually quite forgiving in some respects. But, you know, for instance, the city folding in Inception is in the middle of the day in Paris. And so, you know, where does the reality end in that shot? Where does the, the computer graphics uh, begin? By the end of that sequence, the entire image is computer-generated. And that was that was a key thing, but also the creative aspect of it was, you know, you're really at, you're you're part of the storytelling. You're being asked to say, well, how do you tell this story that Ariadne, uh, Ellen Page's character, can manipulate the world of her dream? How how does that manipulation work? You know, what is her thought process? She's an architect. She approaches it from an engineering standpoint. So perhaps there's some mechanical mechanism in the dream world that drives the folding of the. Of the city, and uh, the idea actually for that came from something we'd all seen on Batman Begins, in the scene where we raised the bridges over the Gotham River, which were the drawbridges over the Chicago River in Chicago. And if you stand in one of the uh, the sort of the streets of Chicago, like LaSalle Street, and you watch the bridge raising up, it's framed by the canyon of skyscrapers either side. And the whole world looks like it's folding on a hinge because yes. the street comes up, it's got the road markings on it, it's got the uh, sidewalk, the, the street lamps, everything is plugged into the bridge and just goes with it. So it's folding on this big hinge. And I suggested to Chris that we could get that sense of engineering and monumentality and have, make a series of linked bridges, effectively, that roll up over your head, like as if you're pulling the segments of a big tank track over you. And it lent that idea lent itself to the uh, to the Paris location because the Paris buildings are built on this very regular grid plan. It's very yes. uh, uh, modular, and so it fitted into that kind of idea. So, uh, and he he liked that idea a lot. And so that was that was probably the the biggest difference is you are creatively involved in a way that I wasn't on the Batman films. So the Batman films was go and go out and create reality, go and photograph Chicago and make a really big version of it. That's really what making Gotham City is. And Interstellar, the image mm -hmm. for me that still haunts me, and I dream about it, is when they're on that planet and the tidal wave the comes wave, and yes. you realise that wave is, I don't know, how a mile high? We, uh, we described it as being, uh, I think it was 4,000 feet high, so it's just under a mile high. I think later on we had a 10,000-foot wave. The scale varies. You cheat these things in filmmaking all the time. But, but just images like yeah. that, I mean, are these <clears> things that just come from the script or do you dream some of these things yourself well it's they are surreal overpowering images which do sort of speak to sort of deep psychological fears you know the idea of a giant wave coming in that there's nothing you can do and you know it's going to totally destroy you when it gets to you there is a, a sort of you know the, the nightmare element to that it was in the script chris's scripts were always very descriptive but not prescriptive they wouldn't tell you you have to do it like this and it has to be this sequence of shots so it was a case of you read the script and then you go away and you think of well how am I going to do this what's the visualization we're going to come up with and the process in the case of that big wave was that we realized that there's only so much we could do with simulation in other words using the physics software to figure out how the wave might move and that we actually just had to sculpt it so we actually animated it in a very traditional process where an animator created the shape of the wave and then keyframed it from position to position and it's building and curling over 
But then we ran some very, very sophisticated software over the top of it, which adds all the surface detail, the spray and the waves and the foam and all that sort of stuff. And that took a huge amount of number crunching to do the resolution needed for that film, because it's an IMAX film. It would be, you'd, you'd press go on the computer and you'd have to wait anything up to eight weeks before the computer finished the run on the wow. shot. Which Chris wasn't especially happy about at the time. <laughs> but I said, there, this, is, this is non-negotiable. I cannot make it go any faster. I've got 30,000 computers working on this. It's eight weeks. Actually, it was more like 12 weeks by the time we'd finished. And uh, so you had to get it right first time because there was very little do-over time in, in that. Uh, you got maybe two or three goes at it in the production of the film. And in that case, again, it's, it's Chris is sort of trusting you to get on with it. And he was, frankly, quite concerned that we could bring the requisite level of realism because he felt that everything he'd seen in films up to that point in terms of digital water looked a bit fake. But I think the thing that works for us in that is that First off, we're backing into a live-action environment. We went out and we shot that in a, a lagoon off the coast of Iceland, which is freezing, and we were stuck in, stuck, sat out in this thing for about a week in two foot of water uh, with, the, with the cast. Uh, Anne Hathaway got particularly cold when her suit filled up with water at one point. So you've got that reality basis, the reference. Again, it's putting something in front of the camera, and you're, you're dovetailing into that. You're trying to join into that. But the sheer scale of the wave, the monumentality of it, I think also is our friend because nobody really knows what a giant wave would look like if it's that big. So actually you start thinking about, well, what do mountains look like? You know, what does a huge glacier look like? What does a cloud formation look like? Those become the references. So that's the, what we're sort of keying into in terms of uh, something which is recognisable to the audience. And you have to satisfy a little bit of audience expectation. Otherwise, you end up presenting an image which is so extraordinary nobody can understand what they're looking at. The Harry Potter films that you sure. worked on, they are two of the darkest, mm -hmm. and the visuals of those films are the, the real yes. joy of them. Tell me about that experience and how you approach them. The Harry Potter franchise has been an extraordinary thing for the British film industry because it gave us 10 years of consistent work at the highest possible level of quality across all areas of filmmaking. And, uh, you know, it's been key in building the British film industry to what it is right now in terms of the... You know, it's absolutely jammed with production right now. The franchise took a, an interesting turn with the third film that Alfonso Cuaron directed. Prisoner, which is, of, yeah, Prisoner of Azkaban, yeah. which is the first film that Dean Egg worked on. And I was involved in uh, getting that set up before then moving off on to Batman Begins. And that took it in a darker, more almost an art house direction, mm. you could say. For me, the big change came when I got to work on uh, The Order of the Phoenix, which is the fifth movie, and the first one that David Yates directed. And David directed the remaining films in the, um, in the series and is now directing the Fantastic Beasts films. And David Yates is a very interesting director because he came from a non... It's not a, he didn't come from a visual effects, big tentpole movie background. He's all about the character. He's all about the stories of the characters and the way the relationships work between them. And it was interesting listening to him talk about things because he would talk about the environments and the worlds we were going to be creating, like Hogwarts or the magical worlds in the, that they go into or the Forbidden Forest, as if they were characters. That's how he would describe it. So you wouldn't have a discussion about the technical aspects of recreating the stone facade of the, the castle or you know the, the density of the forest or how thick the, the, the fog is inside the forest or whatever. 
It's all about the feeling that he wanted to express with these things. And so that was very exciting because you were being asked to really bring your creative abilities to this rather than just doing a technical polish and bolting together somebody else's ideas, which visual effects can be sometimes. Is the Half-Blood Prince the one with the wolf transformation? No, that's actually, that's the fourth film, I believe, The Wolf. Uh, no, I'm wrong. The, Don't worry. the Werewolf is number three. Half-Blood Prince has... The sequence set in the... Uh, well, it opens with the Death Eaters flying down out of the sky over London and uh, travelling across Trafalgar Square up to Diagon Alley and destroying the Millennium Bridge, famously. Now, that came from a dream that uh, that David Yates had. Oh, really? Because it's not in the book. The, the, the Death Eaters don't... Uh, the Dark Wizards don't attack the Millennium Bridge, which I don't think even existed when, when Joe Rowling wrote the book. David had had this dream and he said, I saw the bridge being destroyed, I want to put it into the film. So we, uh, we recreated the Millennium Bridge and tore it apart. And we actually had uh, Arup, uh, the engineers, as consultants yes. on the project and we were showing them how we wanted to destroy it and they, I think they said something like, that is not a valid failure mode of the structure. <laughs> And, and we said, ah, oh, yes, but did you ever account for aerial attack by dark wizards? Exactly. <laughs> had, they, had they worked that into their emergency <laughs> Clearly scenarios? not. Can you give me an example of when you talked about a physical environment like the forest mm. having a character, can you talk me through an example of how that actually worked then in what you put together that we saw on screen? Well, what was interesting about that was that the Leavesden Studios at the time was a converted old Rolls-Royce jet engine factory, and uh, they'd made all sorts of aircraft and planes there for many, many years, back to the 20s. As a result, the stages are not what we would consider to be proper movie stages. They didn't have proper ceiling heights. So the ceiling in the Forbidden Forest set was quite low. So the tree trunks only went up about 20 feet, and then we had to extend them digitally. But in reality, we had to replace most of it because... The proximity of the ceiling, the lights are very close to the set and it looks very, what we'd say, saucy. You can see that there's a light source nearby. Saucy, S-O-U-R. So there was a lot of work went into that. We also There was also a late change to the lighting design for the whole scene. The cinematographer, whose name I forget, a Polish gentleman, who had worked extensively with Krzysztof Kieslowski, so it was a great art house cinematographer, he had lit it in a very stylized way uh, with, with lots of slanting light beams coming in from all sorts of different directions and we had to digitally remove most of those and unify the lighting because the, uh, the producers decided that it needed to have a different feel. I think also it moved, the whole scene moved later in the day so we had to change the whole time of day in the scene as well, which was quite a challenge and then we had to put a 16 foot teenage giant into it as well, which was the biggest <laughs> deal there so, but the thing is that you're trying to unify the environment with the character that you're creating, which was this teenage giant, Grawp, which is Hagrid's uh, younger half-brother, who's entirely computer-generated. And so you're treating everything as a totality, you know, the, the environment of the forest, uh, the lighting, the look of it, and the way that the, uh, the young giant is presented all uh, are taken together as one thing. And that was, that was a big old challenge because it was, on a technical level, it was incredibly difficult. It was pushing the limits of what we could do with the creature animation at the time. And you were also trying to very fine-tune this thing to, uh, for it to sit in and feel all part of the marvellous production design that Stuart Craig had done for the rest of the film. What's really striking talking to you about your career is how you've always pushed at the physical limits of the technology that's mm. available and always pushed yourself to do as much as you could on your own. You've not waited to be shown how to do something, as you yes. said. But computer animation was a new world when you started out. Mm. Now anyone could, in theory, do a lot with a smartphone or a tablet with the right yes. software. Is it harder or easier now to break into this career? And what advice would you give to people who are thinking about it? 
It's easy from the point of view that there is so much of it. There's a huge, huge demand for this. You think about the movies which are in the cinema right now, like the Avengers Endgame film, which Dean Egg did a big chunk of. That employs thousands of visual effects artists, and that's... And that sets the bar for mainstream tentpole cinema, as we call it in Hollywood. There are a lot of effects work in those films. It's difficult to think of big blockbuster films that don't have lots and lots of visual effects now. So there's lots of opportunity. There's also lots of information out there. You know, when I was starting, it was very difficult to find out anything. And I had to rely on the sort of making of film books, you know, like the making of Alien, which I still have, which I bought as a teenager in 79, before, long before I could see the I film. I can lend you my The Making of Space 1999 if you want. Oh, I'd love to see that. It's, uh, the, you'd, so you'd get little bits of information from that, but there was no internet and there were little television shows sometimes that would pop up and show you a little bit about stuff. But it was difficult to find the stuff out. Whereas now you can just go online and all the big visual effects houses will have a page that tells you the sort of things you should be studying at college and the skills you want to build, pointing you at various resources. There are infinite number of tutorials online to teach you how to use the software. You know, if I'm using a bit of software like editing software and I can't figure out how to do something, I don't bother looking in the manual. I just Google uh, Adobe Premiere Pro create subtitles and then I'll find a tutorial that will take me through it and I'll learn it very quickly. Uh, at the high end of visual effects, you know, the sort of top tier, and there's maybe five big studios of which Dean Egg is one that produce the, the, you know, the really fancy effects you see in films. The competition is very intense because a lot of the things that we used to do were, you know, were, unique, were unique to us. Uh, for instance, creating the folding city in Inception. It's pretty straightforward now to create that kind of digital environment. I would say that it's difficult to do something that's as interesting as that, but on a technical level, it's pretty straightforward now, and it's, it's a well-known and understood thing, whereas at the time when we did it in 2009, 2010, it was groundbreaking in terms of the realism of the, uh, the environment. So what we do is we push at the, what is the more complicated stuff, you know, and the, the, all the real challenging work is coming in in things like creature work, you know, making animals that look convincing that talk, uh, you know, for example, if you want to reduce it, or, uh, or making more and more spectacular fantasy world you know that you go to uh, middle earth and it looks as if you're really there what are you working on next i am the creative director at dnex so i'm working across a, a variety of uh, of different projects you know uh, overseeing tests uh, planning development working with the clients to figure out uh, the creative challenges on their on their movies and but no I, names as yet. It's no, you see, well, this is the thing. Is Hollywood is a very secretive business. Chris Nolan, for example, is making a new film. Uh, I Even I don't know what the title of his new but film is. But you're working is. on it. Well, the company is working on it, yes. I'm not, I'm not working on it directly. I've got to ask before we finish, mm. how do you feel about the whole concern over the uncanny valley of reanimating dead actors mm -hmm. or, you know, retrospectively <clears throat> making them look younger? People are really concerned about that. What's your view? Well, I think the, the business about making actors look younger, I mean, it's just that you were just using digital tools to do something that hair and makeup have done for a very, very long time. Uh, so, uh, the, to, you know, and we can do it very convincingly if you spend enough money doing it these days. So you can take somebody back to their 20s if you need to. Um, and they might be in their 60s or 70s. Yeah, but say take the Peter Cushing reanimation mm -hmm. for um, the Star Wars episode... Um, well, seven was it? I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's uh, Star Wars. It was uh, Rogue One, Rogue the, One um, yeah, uh, a Star Wars story, one of the spin-off films. And I mean, what's interesting there is that I took my kids to see the film, and they'd seen Star Wars, but they really didn't remember who Peter Cushing was, and they just thought he was an actor. 
they just they said, well, uh, the guy who was running the Death Star, I said, well, that's a re digital recreation of Peter Cushing, and they didn't realise that it was a digital character. Now, somebody who grew up watching Peter Cushing is very aware of the differences between that version and the version from the original films and from all those wonderful Hammer films. So I was I was aware of it. Of course, I'm a visual effects professional, so I'm looking for it. But I think the, the vast majority of the film audience didn't notice it at all. So then you say, well, is it creatively justified? You know, why would I want to do this? When you had a great actor yeah. like Guy Henry portraying yeah. him anyway, they just Absolutely. animated over his face. So I think the thing there is they wanted to, you know, the the... The director, Gareth Edwards, uh, he very much wanted to have this connection back to the DNA of the original film because, you know, he's a, he grew up as a big Star Wars fan watching the film when it first came out. And so he wanted to have that direct connection back to it and so that it doesn't just feel like a bunch of new people have turned up pretending to be uh, to be uh, the Star Wars cast. I can totally understand the creative justification for doing that. And also it's a sort of... It's, it's, a, it's a great selling point. It's like, come and see this film. We've brought mm -hmm. Peter Cushing back to life. It's always been something that filmmakers have wanted to do is to bring back the you know the Hollywood greats. You know, if you could have Fred Astaire and Humphrey Bogart in a film, in a movie today, I'm sure filmmakers would want to do that or recreate historical personas. You think about Forrest Gump. One of the things that was a big deal at the time when Forrest Gump was released were all the scenes where he's inserted into archive footage of you know with John Kennedy yeah, and things Nixon. like that, or meeting meeting uh, John Lennon or whatever. You're going to sidestep whether or not you think it's a good thing. I think it's a divide. It's the ethical <laughs> divide, but you're allowed to sidestep I think it's that. a good thing if it's justified. It's like everything. Basically, ultimately, it comes down to this. There are two types of filmmaking, good filmmaking and bad filmmaking. <laughs> and that's really what it is. When people complain to me about visual effects and they say, oh, CGI is ruining cinema, you know, visual effects are ruining cinema, and I say, you know, visual effects have been part of cinema since day one since Thomas Edison first stopped the camera and walked his act out off the set and then started rolling again. That's a visual effect. And that's you know, over 100 years ago. So um, then you have to ask yourself, well, did it, make, would, did it make sense for that film to do that? And, you know, my favourite films are films from the 1940s. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Michael Powell and Eric Pressburger, who oh, so fully embraced... Matter of, matter of Life and yeah, Death? Matter of Life and Death, which fully embraces the use of visual effects to tell an extraordinary story in creating the celestial world uh, at the beginning of the film and this amazing animated opening sequence as you track through the universe. Colonel Blimp, it's not a film you think of that has visual effects in it, but it has quite a bit of visual effects work. And it's got a marvellous miniature sequence at the end of the, uh, the duelling scene where the camera pulls out and ends up outside the gymnasium where they're having their duel. Yes. And that's a model. And it's also a model that's been put through an optical printer because they've added uh, snow falling in front of it. You couldn't shoot that for real. Certainly couldn't shoot it for real back then, the, sh the way that it's actually staged, that shot, which gives it this magical fairy tale feel. But, you know, they're, they're completely justified, and that's a great film. Where I think people get upset about visual effects, and whether it's recreating dead actors or, you know, endless scenes of battling robots or whatever, is when you feel that it's just gratuitous and that it's not justified, or where the, where the filmmakers have ignored the rules of reality, which tell people that things work properly. So uh, people say, oh, the CG was weightless in that film. And that's quite often because, not because the visual effects artists have fallen down on the job, but because the filmmakers have said, I need this guy to get from here to here and he needs to punch that fella on the way and it all has to happen in, in 48 frames. And you say, well, you can't do that. He's going to be travelling at Mach 2. And, uh, you know, the accelerations and decelerations, they're not something that we experience in the real world. Uh, it won't look convincing on screen. They say, I don't care. I've got a 48-second slot in the film and need to fill that gap. And that's where things tend to start going wrong. And it doesn't matter how 
fancy the computers are, you can't tell that story. We have ended up with mm. this perfect conjunction, that last answer, of art and science, mm. which is kind of where we started, the yes. child of scientists growing up with a fascination with comics and art. Paul J. Franklin, it's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed, and the producer was Farah Jassid. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this episode by rating it and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Hello again, it's Farah Jassat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars, including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. Download the Out app today. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.